There's an 80-20 in everything in life, right? 20% of the effort is going to get you 80% of your results. And we know that if we added these subsidiaries, selling boxes, doing third-party management, solar, all these other ways that we could make money, we're almost positive that those would fall in the 80% of things that only make us 20% of our money. And they're also the 80, you know, the 20% of things that should cause 80% of the headaches. So it's tough to stay disciplined, though. It's really, really tough to stay disciplined. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate firm in the great state of Texas. We buy Class B industrial across all the major markets. We are committed to technology. We have a world-class culture. And more than anything, we are a forward-thinking company. If you want to stay in the know on all things going on at Fort Capital, visit us at fortcapitallp.com, follow us on LinkedIn, or subscribe to this podcast. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. Enjoy the show. Sweaty startup Nick Huber has become one of my best friends. Welcome to the show. Chris, thanks for having me again. Yeah, I I always love chatting with you. Today's going to be fun. Uh, And for anybody listening, yeah, Nick and I met like three years ago and we've become really good friends and um, we talk a lot about business and, and things. So these are always fun conversations. I got to say, I'm kind of, I'm kind of fired up. I know this is not about me, but um, you sent your annual letter out yesterday and <laughs> $290 million of acquisitions, Chris. Um, that's insane. I mean, you got to be the top, one of the top 10 real estate, private real estate syndicators. in, I mean, Texas for sure, but maybe the country. That's impressive. Yeah, it's it is it's nuts. Um, it kind of happens slowly, and then it happens quickly, as as you're going to talk about here from your experience last year. Um, yeah, I told Nick before we got on this one's not about me; it's about him. But we might go back and forth a little bit. Um, yeah, and if you're listening, I guess we'll, we'll release a couple conversations that we've been having on the side too on each of our podcasts. So um, we've been riffing on some projections and things like that. That's kind of fun for sure. All right. When I met Nick three years ago, he had developed one property, uh, self-storage property. Uh, as I recall, he actually went way over budget, but was saved by the market and actually made a bunch of money and learned a ton. And fast forward today, three years later, he bought 30 properties in one year. Um, he's grown what's much- the date that I, What's the date that I went on your show last, Chris? I got my document up. I'll kind of give you the breakdown of where we're at now. Uh, Johnny's looking it up. He'll tell me in a second. I think um, it was, if, if we assume it was about a year ago, let's assume it was, you know, December of 2020. Um, we, we've acquired 34 properties since then. And, and, um, but this year was like by and large, I think you 10 X your company this year. The first time was September 9th, 2020. Yeah. September 9th, 2020 was the first time. So a little over like a year and a half ago. 
Yeah, we've we've bought nine hundred fifty thousand square feet since then, and in two thousand twenty twenty one, we acquired um, just a hair over fifty million dollars worth of self storage. So, um, yeah, I have, I have you to thank for that a lot, Chris, because um, you've been pushing me and giving me the confidence. Because when you're when you're doing this, it, it can be can be a very lonely game. Um, you you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. Um, it's it's kind of rare to meet other um, investors, syndicators. And uh, you've had a, a massive influence on my life. So I'm super, super thankful. You're welcome. And I, you, you kind of framed it right. I think I would have even grown quicker than I did, but it took me a while to meet a couple people. I won't name them here that that really like poured gas on my fire. I was kind of steadily growing and I'm not saying that wasn't great, but there was a couple people that as soon as they kind of unlocked the confidence, um, it's amazing how like you just tell yourself a story. And as soon as you're willing to tell yourself a different story, things can move really quickly. And so for that, I'm glad I could have been that part of you. But I, I would say I've had conversations like this with hundreds of people over the years. Um, it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to do it. One of the most impressive parts about what you've done is you kind of take what you hear and actually go do it and you make it better and you make it your own. And that's really what the secret sauce is. Yeah, thanks. It 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 takes a lot of guts. I'll, I, I'm not going to lie when it's there's not um, I make it sound easy on Twitter. I make it sound easy in a lot of parts of our conversations and the podcast that we have. Um, I have a natural born confidence. But uh, when you're doing something that big and raising so much money and risking so much, you know, of your own reputation and your own business, um, I would I'd be lying if I if I said that it wasn't uh, a lot of anxiety along the way. Right. So when you have somebody you were mentoring me through the big deal, I think that the, the kind of deal that changed all this was in April 2021. That was the nine million dollar acquisition in upstate New York. And you were kind of mentoring me through it. Um, I, I was I was close to not even raising all the money. Um, and you're like, OK, Nick, how did it go a month later? And I'm like, I'm still scared, but it's going well, <laughs> like the customers are paying. Um, and you're like, okay, well, when are you going to do another one? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm scared shitless right now. And, um, but I mean, you were, you were just so confident and, and you read my deck and you're like, Nick, the, your, the way you're thinking about this is the right way. And to have that, um, you know, influence was, was tremendous. And you fast forward six months. I mean, you look at, if you had a crystal ball of the perfect business to get into, a year ago, it was self-storage. I mean, we could argue maybe industrial was a little better or we were right on your heels. But um, we got we got bailed out. I mean, shit, we, we raised the deal on a, on a 10 pref and a 50% promote. And we just sent out distributions for quarter four, 2020, um, 2021. And, and it was a, a deal level 20% cash on cash yield, 15% uh, cash on cash for the LPs. Um, a, a massive chunk of promote already off of cash flow. Um, I mean, it makes guys like me cocky when you're in such a good business, right? I mean, I think we're good operators, but um, nobody would have expected self storage to do what self storage has done the past year. Yeah, I can't remember what the quote is, but it's like a great manager has a tough time turning around a bad business, but an okay manager can actually run a good business. And I think Warren Buffett says that he's like, run your business so an idiot could run it because one day somebody finally will. I think step one, and you've always said it's like find something with tailwinds at your back and eliminate like half of the grind that way. I didn't realize how hard of a business I was in in student storage. I mean, when we were doing that, if you if you go back and listen to me and Chris the first time talk, I, we 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 talked a lot about the pickup and delivery student storage business that my partner Dan and I were in. Ugh. We had to be on time in a town with a box truck. We had two hundred part time employees that needed to be there. They didn't care 
um, we had parents of very wealthy students at these Ivy League schools who um, were just, let's just say they were impatient with uh, subpar service. Um, and it was just, it was a really, really tough business, but man, we learned so much. And when we get into real estate now, I mean, this is a stressful business and, and we're taking it very seriously, but there are no emergencies in the self-storage business. There's, we're not dealing with people's homes. We're not dealing with appointments. We're not dealing with moving trucks. We're not dealing with, um, you know, city traffic. So to be able to step back and operate a real estate company now with what we know about operations, um, we just feel very blessed that we're in a good business. We can afford good people. I mean, we go back to those early talks that we had back in April when we were raising for those deals. And you're like, Nick, you've got to think about this three ways. You got to think about, you know, fueling your company the right way with the right fees. And um, you encouraged me to to charge those fees, even though I wasn't really comfortable in my ability. And we we fast forward now and we've been able to attract some awesome talent and pay them really well. And um, we're really building a, a real estate private equity company the right way. And we kind of thought our investors would push back on those fees, you know, like, you know, do you guys really need an acquisition fee like this and the, the AUM fee and the, and the promotes hefty. And, um, I think they're pumped now that we have really, really good people. Um, and it's not all relying on me anymore, even, you know, already. So that's, that's kind of cool. Yeah. I don't mean to talk my own book, but it just seems crazy to me that anybody would ever want to invest with a GP that doesn't have money to hire people, pay them well, incentivize them, reinvest in them. That just seems absolutely crazy to me. Um, but I can see it from the LP side too. I mean, when, when they're used to, you know, they're in the business of getting as much as they can. It's a negotiation. It's a business transaction. So, um, you know, I don't know, but I'm just pumped that we're, we're delivering. So those initial those initial LPs are 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 uh, making money, which is which was my goal. Yeah, and, and to your point on like a nine million dollar deal is, and, and I don't, it, you know, there's nuance to this. But somebody told me early on when I was trying to do my first like eight figure deal, ten million dollar deal, is like, how do you do a ten million dollar deal? He's like, really, you just add a zero to it. And the truth is, um, the bigger the deals get, the more capital you have to pay really smart people. The attorneys working on the deal are better. The brokers are better. The Everybody is kind of at a level up because A players want to work on bigger things. Um, and so it actually gets easier as, as things go on. And you know, you, we'll sit here a year from now and you'll be talking about a $50 million deal that you're doing and you'll be laughing that you stressed out about a $9 million deal. Um, that's just part of life, but um, it's just how it works. So we closed, we closed $28 million worth of storage in November and December. And we actually raised on the first four deals of this year as well. So another 10. So um, yeah, I mean, $35 million worth of storage that we raised on in, in about a month's time. And it was less stressful than doing the small deals in 2020 and 2019, when we were running around putting out fires, and we didn't have a oiled system. So um, it, it, you're right. I mean, scale makes everything a little bit easier. All right. Well, let's just, we talked about some tailwinds, like what's going on in self-storage. Um, yeah. What, what's the last year look like? Demand has been insatiable from the consumer. I mean, we were scared. I was scared along with you when COVID hit and we didn't know what was going to happen. Turns out everybody just went out and bought stuff. They got bored and went out and bought stuff. So, um, I mean, it's been crazy. I mean, you look, you look at, you know, documents from 2017, 18, 19 on predictions with self-storage. You see them say, you know, how can uh, demand really keep up with supply? Supply has been, you know, there's 30% more storage being put on the market in some of these major metros than there was, you know, the year before. 30% of, of 
like say there's a million square feet out in the market, they're building 300,000 square feet in one year that it has to absorb. And um, the market sucked it right up. The REITs, I mean, you're looking at, looking at CubeSmart, extra space storage, public storage. I study those companies very closely. Um, they're growing like Google. And you're talking 15, 20% year over year cash on, you know, you know, cash growth. Um, street rates are up 25%. Um, they're running higher occupancy than they even like to run 96, 97%. They like to run at 94, 95. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's been crazy. So we, you know, an example is late 2019, last day of 2019, we closed on a property in rural Pennsylvania, um, $52 for a 10 by 10, where it was kind of the market rent there. Um, over the last three weeks, we've rented about 10 units at $119 for a 10 by 10. So rents are, you know, that that is, that's 135% rent growth in a year. And that's what's going on in self-storage right now. And the great thing about storage is like all these multifamily guys that are doubling rents are also having to put all this money into the unit to get them there. In storage, it's not like you're like making the inside any nicer or adding an air conditioner to it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, every every month, every month, 20 or 30 units turn over, right? And when you're turning over months at $79 rents and you're renting them at $119, um, do that for six months. And um, that's how that's how your project your pro forma 8% cash on cash becomes a deal level 20% cash on cash very quickly. So I mean, we're exploding our, our seven year projections right now on a lot of deals that we bought six, eight months ago, which is um, it's mind blowing. I mean, I, I can't I don't even know how to explain it. I feel very lucky. I know there's a lot of nuance to this question. There's no perfect answer, but if you go from 50 to 119, how much of that was just this thing was way under market and maybe market when you bought it was actually 70 and how much of it is like actual growth and like tailwinds, if that makes sense. Because your whole thesis is there's millions, not millions, but tens of thousands of these facilities in these kind of tier two, tier three cities where nobody's paid attention to them forever and you're just paying attention to them. You're, I mean, you're right. So I like buying in small towns more than I like buying in cities. We're, we are looking at the performance of the property we bought in Pittsburgh versus the property we bought an hour outside of Pittsburgh. Yeah. Um, the property an hour outside of Pittsburgh, they hadn't raised rents in 10 years. So you have 10 years of pent up demand and inflation of what should have been rent growth where the operator just didn't raise rents. So um, yeah, a lot of it is just we're, 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 we are going out and doing the work in these small markets to find true market rent. Nobody has done the work to find true market rent. Like CubeSmart, they got a pricing algorithm, right? If, the, if their facility fills up, they raise rents and they always want to have some availability. They are going to do the work to find true market rent. And a lot of these towns we're buying in, actually virtually every one of these towns that we are buying in, um, nobody knows what market rent is because there's not an available unit in town to rent. So um, that that gives us some advantages when we come in and start running it like a, um, you know, algorithmic pricing and, and, and drive revenue. Okay. We talked about this, I think the first time we recorded, but, uh, we're going to run a little scenario. Uh, I live in, uh, Chrisville, Texas in the middle of nowhere and not in the middle of nowhere. That's not where you're buying, but I am outside of DFW and you buy my facility uh, what is your kind of 30 day game plan at a high level? What happens in the next 30 days after you buy? And is it the same vendors or same types of vendors that you're inserting on every property? Or is there certain things you do differently depending on, you know, situations? 
Yeah. So my team has grown. We have 32 employees now. We have two offers out, a person starting next week, um, two people starting the week after that. So we're growing really fast. But um, there's the pre-close team. That's what I do. Um, that is deal sourcing, underwriting, you know, quarterbacking, leading up to closing. Um, we got interviews with the owners, rent roll work. We're getting them all in our software. We're getting all that ready to go. The month after closing is the is when it gets hard for our operations team. I hand it off to my partner, Dan, who oversees 20 people over there, and they're answering phones. Um, that's one division. They're doing collections and auctions to get out the customers that haven't been paying. And the third part is maintenance. So the maintenance team, which is a couple people in Colombia, a couple Americans, they're all remote. Um, they have to set up six or seven vendors on site. So they need a lawn care company. They need a snowplow company. They need a lock cutter. They need um, a maintenance person. They need a, a laborer to come in and sweep units. They need to get a new sign put in. So um, all that work has to be done really the first month. So month leading up to closing, we're vetting the property, getting the rent rolls and put it into our software. Month after closing, we're getting all the customers into our systems and then it's off to the races. Okay. And not one thing that you're doing has somebody on site. Everything you've done to date is is fully run remotely. We have no office. Um, I'm sitting upstairs in my house right now. Um, our CFOs in in Boston, our COOs in Chicago. Um, my business partner spent half the year in New York City. We have acquisitions folks in Nashville and Augusta. We have tw- uh, 14, 15 employees in the Philippines. We have four in Colombia. Um, we have a full. We have one full time person in upstate New York. One in Gloversville, New York. Um, we're everywhere. Yeah. So it's all done with software. I mean, you, you think somebody startup, you think that I'm anti-tech. Um, I think we are the most advanced op- self-storage operators in the country as far as technology. So yeah, there are people on site, but those are vendors, right? We keep a workers' comp policy in every state. Um, we have laborers on site that need to go out and be managed. So we have a team managing these people to go out and sweep units, pick up trash. It's called the weekly check, check-in, right? Um, but other than that, yeah, we have a locksmith. We have a pest control company. We have a, a plow company. We have a, a gate operating company that we hire. So um, it's all managed online. Yeah. I think the, the 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 interesting part is it's actually most of what you're doing. The vendors are all sweaty. The administration is is tech. What is What happens at the weekly check-in? You've never told me about that. Yeah. So it's, a, it's an Asana checklist where our um, a laborer goes out, a person in a storage squad shirt or a bolt storage shirt goes out to this property and they need to, you know, our customer service team has made a list of things that need done. Hey, unit 17, somebody moved out, needs checked. Unit 23, um, you know, that, that needs to have a lock cut and we need to take pictures of it to prepare for an online auction. Um, so they have a checklist. They show up on the top of every checklist is walk the property, take pictures of it, pick up all the trash. Um, number two, do these units, like sweep these units, get a new lock in there, get them ready to rent. Number three, you know, take pictures of any auctions. And then there's just random things that we need done, right? Um, and then they do those things, take pictures of them, or we can look at them, you know, track their work, and then they go home. So if I was going into one of these towns, um, how, how, how do you go about sourcing all these people? You're on Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, Google, how do you find all these vendors? Yeah, it's, it's a very tough job. And that's probably the toughest job that we do. And especially in this labor market. Um, and you have to be really resourceful. I mean, sometimes you're calling hardware stores, asking them if they know anybody looking for part-time work or if they, who plows their lawn, right. Or, um, you know, who does the pest control at your business and you're calling hardware stores, you're calling landscapers and, and you try to get in and network around and get cell phone numbers of, of providers. Because 
as we know, most of these sweaty startup owners in these towns, these vendors, these, pr- these service providers, they don't have websites that are t- kind of tough to find on Google. So um, it takes a lot of work and, and we dig our, you know, we dig in and do that work. Are, are most of your tenants um, actual consumers or a lot of these small businesses that keep a storage unit? I'd say it's 85 to 15, 85 consumer, 15 small business. Yeah. And are you doing any outdoor storage or RV boat storage or anything of that nature or strictly units? We've had a tough go with RV storage because RV storage, it fills up in the, in the winter because everybody's storing their RV. And in the summer, they take their RV out and they don't want to pay for March, April, May, June, July, August, September, and October. So we actually required 12-month leases at one of our properties and thinking that, okay, if, if there's no other option and people need a place to store their things, maybe they'll want to store it over the summer. Maybe they'll sign a 12-month lease to store their RV. Um, we only rented about half of them instead of all of them, which is still a net positive from a revenue perspective because we'll get revenue into the summer. But um, yeah, our RV, RV has been tough for me. I, I'm, I'm not as excited about RV storage right now as I was six months ago. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's a bit more on how Fort Capital utilizes the platform. You know, your, your, your tenants are your customers, but your real customers are your investors. And the real estate business, the lifeblood is the ability to have capital. It's an expensive game and being able to treat them, um, you know, like royalty. And when you have a lack of resources or you're smaller, it's very tough to be able to report in a way that, again, those high net worth individuals are expect or used to seeing. And so for years, we had either tried building stuff from scratch. It never worked. We would try hiring these companies that that wanted to charge us a quarter million dollars a year for investor reporting, and it just never worked. And when we found Juniper, um, it aligned with our mission to provide our investors not only great returns, but a great experience in achieving those returns, which goes back to transparency, communication, their ability to know where their money is. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjuniperSquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. And, and I don't mean to put you on the spot. Um, usually if I'm going to ask a question like this, I'll, I'll give the person a heads up, but but you're, uh, you're savvy. You, Bring it at me. You've bought a million square feet of this stuff. You're now three years into it. You've gotten probably 10 years worth of work done in the last two years. Have you had any aha moments or is there something that now three years into it, you're like, man, there's huge opportunity here. Or like just kind of these revelations. I, as I get further into class B, it still fascinates me how I'm like, oh, here's another moat or like, oh, here's another unbelievable thing that's coming. Um, like I think since we have flat roofs and as solar gets cheaper, we're just a sitting duck waiting for like solar people to come put solar everywhere. We're not doing it yet. Or when cannabis gets legalized in Texas, we think, oh my gosh, we're just, a, we're just waiting for this to happen. Are you having any of those aha moments of like, there's so much more that can be done here? I think it's very, very easy as you make money and as things start going well to be overloaded by opportunities. And I got ahead in life early on when I was 
20 and even when I was 25 and 30, I mean, this is all pretty new to me. I'm 32 years old. Um, I got ahead by saying yes. Like I was chasing opportunities. I was excitable. I, I was doing things, right? I was just out saying yes and going and shaking and getting after opportunities. Yeah. We're finally at a point where Danny and I look at each other. Danny's my partner. We look at each other and say, all we need to do is focus. All we need to do is rent these units, make sure these properties are clean and well-maintained. And if we do that and we, and we watch our acquisitions team and we're holding our acquisitions team accountable and we're keeping an, our eye on underwriting, if we do that for five years, we're going to have a $500 million portfolio and we're going to own 25, you know, Danny's going to own 25% of the promote or half the promote and I'm going to own half the promote. That's life changing. That is not only life changing, that's this generational changing things. Um, so for me to get focused on anything else, I mean, we get calls from people who want to put cell towers and billboards and, 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 you know, uh, solar. And my answer is almost always no. <laughs> do you want to do third party management? No. Um, do you want to, you know, any, no, the answer is no. Right. I want to, I want to hang out with people like Chris powers, hang out with my kids, play golf and focus really, really intently on leasing units and you know making sure these buildings are well maintained because that's um that's all we need to do right now <laughs> okay anybody that just everybody that's listening to this that is starting a business think rewind that and listen to it again and then rewind it and listen to it again rewind it and listen to it again that is a 70 year old's wisdom being spoken this early on um that is one of the most impressive answers. I'm I'm unbelievably impressed. And I have to give my my partner Jason the credit. He's the one that's taught me to hold us to those standards because I live in a world where I have ideas all the time but people are bringing me ideas constantly. And Jason's been like, "No, no, no, no. Like it is such a simple business and it can become complicated overnight if you let it." Um everybody listening just keep rewinding and listening again. There's an 80-20 in everything in life, right? Um, you know, 20% of the effort is going to get you 80% of your results. And we know that if we added these subsidiaries, selling boxes, doing third-party management, solar, all these other ways that we could make money, we're almost positive that those would fall in the 80% of things that only make us 20% of our money. And they're and they're also the 80, you know, the 20% of things that should cause 80% of headaches. Um, so yeah, it's 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 tough to stay disciplined, though. It's really, really tough to stay disciplined. We have LPs that, I mean, we filled up our last couple of deals. At the end of this quarter, we were really hurt. We, we were, we were stre- pushing our limits as far as LP capital went. Like we were really working hard to raise LP capital. I was pounding my newsletter. I was um, taking calls all day, like meeting as many people. So was Kevin, my CFO. And then this quarter comes around and, and our pipeline is obviously a little bit drier. So is, so is everybody's, right? We tried to close as many deals as we could by the end of the year before cap gains. And now we're working on filling our pipeline again. So we'll raise, we'll send out one raise this month and it's a $600,000 raise. Yeah. We, we had a bunch of LPs call us and get upset that they didn't get allocation and it filled up in like four minutes. And um, that's when, that's when it, you know, the, the greedy and the ego and me says, well, we just need to go pay whatever because look at storage. I mean, Look at this. We're 38% revenue growth. And, you know, by by six months in, the last seven deals we bought, Chris, six months in, we've raised revenue by 38% month over month. 
six months in. So when when you're able to do that operationally, you can buy anything and it's going to make money. So it's really hard for us not to say, oh, let's just go pay, pay whatever these brokers want. We're just going to pay. We're going to go buy. But we really have stayed disciplined because we know we don't need to buy $300 million worth of storage. We just need to you know, stay disciplined and let the market come to us. I'm super impressive, man. It's uh, that that's that's super mature of you. I would say uh, raising in December usually sucks. People are traveling. It's holidays. People are in the holiday spirit. They're just trying to like enjoy themselves. Um, yeah, it's always a it's always kind of a weird time to raise. We raised in in December. We raised almost fifteen million dollars, which is you know two thirds of what we've. <laughs> What we've raised all together. So it was crazy, man. It was crazy. And and on the 38% rent growth, and you know, we're experiencing not quite that high, but something similar in industrial. You know, a big part of my letter was about learning to buy at the new price and understanding when fundamentals are what's driving price and when and when price is just getting out of whack. And when something's growing that quick, it's got to be hard to, you know, you're constantly kind of leveling up to, you know, you know, you're buying for something in, in September 2020 at a rate. Now you're probably buying at a higher price. And it's what I spend my time thinking about all day is are are the fundamentals continuing to justify the price? Have things, um, you know, change? And for me, that means no supply is still coming on board. It's still a depleting supply class. Tenants are still, uh, there's more tenants than there could ever be before. People are not leaving the class B industrial for class A industrial when they're successful. Like in storage, your people are just getting a second unit instead of, you know, it, the more they need to store, they're not just leaving it all together. Um, and so I just kind of keep going through those those things I care about. And I'm like, these are all stronger than they were before. It's a mental battle. It is a mental battle. I mean, some days I'm stressed and some days I'm worried. Some days I'm you know, anxious about the deals we're underwriting and, oh my gosh, can we really do this? And other days I'm more confident than I could ever be when I get out of bed. And, uh, you know, I kind of, I kind of, I even out in a, in a balance between those two where I'm thinking about the downside and, and, uh, seeing the, the upside happen. I mean, luckily we have so many deals that we operate now. I mean, every morning I wake up and check management reports, the data that I have at my fingertips in the storage business is insane. I see move-ins, move-outs, what rates, so in, in about five minutes every morning, I, can, I have I have these 15 different properties on the top of my facility or these deals that include all the different properties. And I can see how many customers moved in, what rates, how, how many moved out. And so, you know, as this data has been coming in the last three months, it's been like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. How, yeah, I cannot believe we just were renting units at $120 a month, you know, it's stuff like that. So, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really tough job. Being a capital allocator is very, very stressful, I think. The coolest thing, and and you know, I think this is something that should be celebrated, and it is, but it's not talked about it enough. Is like people are getting to watch Nick in real time make a hundred million dollar net worth. If you watch him for the next five more years, maybe even less than that, you have seen him go. I'm not saying you didn't start with zero. You had you had you had done something, but you get to watch this happen in in real time. And the truth is. You don't have a magic wand. You're not a wizard. You're not like have some pixie dust. It's what you said. It's like find a good idea, be relentlessly focused on it. And what I want to move to in the next is um, it's part of your flywheel. A lot of people might say, don't create a lot of competitors. I could make an argument. You've created this army of self-storage folks. 
And if you looked at for every person you've taught, you continuously get more successful. How do you feel about this army that you've created? Um, now, obviously, kudos to all these folks. They had to go do the work. And I remember uh, reading that thread. I guess the guy's name was like Sultan of Storage. And he talked about listening to you on the multi or my first million. And now he owns seven self-storage facilities. He quit his job. He, it's just unbelievable. Um, how do you feel about all that? So I've, I'm, I'm about to do my 100th consulting call. And that's, and that's where somebody pays me $2,500 to get on the phone with them for an hour and look at a storage deal with them. And I guess if we, if we rewind... <laughs> That that post I had on Twitter that was this was mind blowing to me even a month and a half ago I made a post that said weekend challenge go out and make five hundred bucks this weekend if you make five hundred bucks this weekend um, I'm gonna I'll do three coaching calls with you Sparrow websites one of my sponsors will set you up with a website Mitchell Baldridge will give you accounting and then a bunch of people pitched in and then all of a sudden there's like three or four grand worth of prize money for the person who was gonna go out and make five hundred dollars this weekend nobody did it Chris. No, nobody. It got it got seen by two million people. That post got got um, two million impressions on Twitter. That post got retweeted four hundred times, five thousand likes. All you had to do was go out and make five hundred dollars in your in your town in your neighborhood doing something. Um, three people tried it. Um, one person did it. Uh, it, it he he kind of repaired a fence that him and his dad already had planned, and it was kind of fishy. Another guy repaired some mail mailboxes and did it. Um, he was the guy who won. He got all the money and he got the coaching call with me. I don't think he's still in operations, but I think my lesson was, I, th I, I was, I was worried that 10 or 15 people were going to go out and do this. I was going to have all this consulting. I had to do this big headache. Nobody did it. I've done a hundred consulting calls. Five people have bought storage facilities. 10 of them have become my LPs. So, I mean, like you said, I, I, I part of that makes me sad, but part of it, makes me really glad because I'm, I'm able to come out here and, and get out and do this stuff and make money because it's, it's an opportunity, right? And <laughs> it's not rocket science and I'm able to make a little bit of money. And would I be able to make money if I didn't, uh, if everybody felt like I did and was willing to go out and take the chances and do the, do the work and take the risk and sign on the dotted line. And when it comes time to wire that money to close on that storage facility to actually do it, you know, I don't know, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I definitely have I'm sure there will come a point where I lose a deal to somebody I consulted. <laughs> it might be me. I, you haven't consulted me, but I told you I looked at like two stealth storage deals when I've been looking for my 1031. I might be your next competitor. I don't know. You're getting a little soft, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> what I would tell you to what you just said is, is life. That is probably the ratio of risk takers to non-risk takers. There's a lot of people that want to take that leap that for what other reason have trouble pulling that, um, you know, pulling the trigger and, and moving forward. But I would tell you, and this is, I think, one of the things that we connected on really early on, there's so much room for everybody to win. And if, and if, if helping somebody else out is going to put your company at risk, the real answer is you kind of have a shitty company. I'm just going to say it. Like, you have no competitive advantage, no moat, no nothing that makes you great. If helping somebody else out that could possibly one day become a competitor is really going to put a dent in your business. It was pretty awesome to get that message from the Sultan of Storage guy. He's become a friend of mine. He sent me a bottle of bourbon for Christmas when he closed on his fourth one. Um, I, I mean, what do I need? An extra storage facility? Or is it kind of cool to see a guy who bought one out in, in Seattle, Washington 
quit his job and building a generational wealth business for himself. Um, it's pretty cool, but yeah, I, I, it's a, it, it was, it's a really, you have to rewire your mind to think that you going out here and teaching everybody how to do storage is going to actually benefit you and not create competitors for yourself. Um, I still sometimes doubt myself, right? I still sometimes get worried that I'm giving away all my secrets. And, and I walked into a place in North Georgia um, last week and I walked in, shook the guy's hand. I was ready to, to negotiate a deal to buy a storage facility. And the first thing he said was, hey, Nick, I just watched your podcast. And that definitely, you know, I thought I was like, I, I was a little anxious. I'm like, dang, that might put me at a disadvantage here. But, um, you know, we shook hands and made a deal and he respected me a lot. So I don't know. Did it put me at a disadvantage? I, I'm not sure. And to something you said earlier about the kind of always being nervous going into every deal, that's one of the best qualities you could look for in a GP. As soon as they become ultra confident and ultra, uh, you know, nothing's going to go wrong, that that's a signal. I'm the same way. Every time we're closing, um, you know, maybe I don't feel the same way I felt after my first deal where it was like sink or swim. But I always, when I have other people's money, um, it's like, it's like oxygen. I would rather lose my own money than lose somebody else's. Um, and that's, and that's very healthy for, for you to feel that way. I have these 18 deals on the top. They're bo they're bookmarks on the top of my browser. I have 18 deals that we've done with different properties and all of them. I spend probably three or four more, three or four times as much time looking at the deals that my investors are invested in than the deals I own just me. <laughs> Cause I think that's what I'm, it's, it's, it's stressful. I mean, people post all the time online of like, oh, you're, uh, they make fun of GPs, like presenting deals, right? All these people on Twitter make fun. And we can talk about Twitter and our, and our love hate relationship with Twitter. But these G, these LPs will make fun of GPs presenting these deals and say, you know, all right, 12, 12 IRR, um, you know, compressed cap rated exit does, who cares? LP, LPs are the one at risk, right? That's what they say. And um, that has not been my experience at all. I wish <laughs> sometimes that I could Feel that no, way, I, I think it's a soundbite. I think it's easy for people to latch on to. I think you see it more at like the institutional level when nobody that's actually running the deal has ownership in the deal or like owns the company or, you know, they could just move to the next job before the deal's ever sold. But when you're dealing with kind of founder owners, what I've seen is the best. And you just said it. And I think everybody that we know on Twitter would say virtually the same thing is, the deals that you have 100% of your capital in, you're not as worried about. Um, it's the ones where you have other people's money that you're worried about. And you know, some people say, well, you need to have 10% of your money in the deal for true skin in the game. And what I would say is that's definitely smart and it's, 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 it's honest work. But from the best GPs that I've ever invested with, I personally could almost care less whether they have money in the deal or not because I know they care so much about their reputation that that to them, losing that is a thousand million times more gut-wrenching than maybe losing the 10% of their capital. Um, and you see it across the board. And that's your answer is very typical of some of, you know, really good GPs. They care about- Especially, especially with social media. I mean, Nick Huber- I get lit up enough on social media and I haven't lost anybody's money yet. Imagine what could happen if one of my deals goes sour, right? What that would do, to, <laughs> what that would do to my psyche online. I, I, I start to lose it when people make fun of me for hiring people in the Philippines and changing their lives, let alone, um, you know, 
God forbid one of my deals goes sour and everybody loses their cash. That would that would that would suck. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, CREmodels.com. That is the letter C, the letter R, the letter E, models.com. If you aren't familiar with CRE Models, they are a real estate financial modeling and due diligence firm that specializes in bringing an institutional process to small and mid-sized firms who are raising capital. Because of their extensive experience with large clients, they really make it easy to look professional and polished when raising debt and equity capital. If you have a substantial deal pipeline, use CRE Models for expert due diligence, lease abstracts, financial models, physical due diligence, books and records, and more. They can handle any property type from multifamily to commercial to self-storage or really anything. With CRE Models, we send them all the financial info we have on a deal and they will review and tell us what is missing. This really allows us to focus on the deal structure and we can trust them to jump in as they're an extension of our own firm. You can get in touch with CRE Models at CREmodels.com or call them at 201-252-7487. When you talk to them, remember to ask about their 360-degree analysis team and the real estate technology integration services as well. And now back to the show. The saddest thing about social media and the media in general is the incentives have been built to destroy anybody. It's like a matter of time. The incentives are there. You slip up once, everything you're taking, everything you say can be taken out of context. We're going to move to that part of the conversation. Um, it's designed. I have this, you know, feeling and hope in my life in, in my mind that we're going to correct this. Um, it shouldn't be that way that nobody that's a leader wants to be public anymore, that everything that you say gets taken out of context. And so we'll just, I want to get right into the recent tweet and then to the extensional share, I want you to uh, share what you learned behind the scenes from an, a pretty incredible individual. So the tweet was basically that you're hiring folks in the Philippines, um, outsource yeah, labor. Before- what, one one thing before that I've just been thinking about recently. I mean, everybody everybody's all into communities, right? It's all about community. Web three is about communities. It's about you know, and and you think about some of the biggest. What are some of the biggest communities in the world, Chris? It's Reddit. Reddit is literally the original community. It's where everybody can go in one area with everybody they agree with and hang out. Twitter is another one. Sports teams is another one. Reddit is probably the most cancerous, hateful place in the world. Oh, Twitter, awful. Twitter is much, much more negativity than positivity on Twitter, and flip and and look at these football fans fighting each other and booing and throwing bottles at their Dallas Cowboys players this last weekend. I mean, is community really the answer to everything? I don't know, right? A lot of things about community don't make me feel good inside when I'm in when I'm in big communities where I don't know everybody. When I'm in a community of more than five or ten close friends, I don't I don't feel like I can be myself. I don't feel guarded and I see a lot of things that make me just feel bad inside. I see a lot of that on Twitter, see a ton of it on Reddit and even sports fans. I mean, I got into college football watching my dogs win the championship and I was sitting there next to people who were screaming with me for the dogs. And at the end of the third quarter, they were calling for our head quarterbacks. They were calling for our quarterback's head, screaming at him, yelling expletives, cursing because they wanted Stetson Bennett to be taken out of the game. Luckily, he 
turned around and won the game for the dogs. But it just shows you kind of how these communities can be so um, sucky. That has been that has it. been America the last 15, 20 years is you are you're incentivized to hate somebody. You can attach an idea or something to an individual. Whereas if you had a thousand pseudonymous or anonymous accounts in a community, you can't attach the idea or the action to an actual person. And that's why people love being anonymous. They can say what they want to say and they're not going to get attacked because nobody nobody can attach it to anything. And to what you just said, like hating your quarterback, they loved him when he was throwing touchdowns. And then it's like this thing. It's like um, if Nick decides to hate someone and I'm friends with Nick, um, now I'm incentivized to like double hate. And I think Elon Musk said it best. He's like, look, these people all fight for a different army. They're going to fire bullets at you because that's what they were told to do. And that's what all their friends on their army are doing. But the reality is, if you had known these people in real life or they actually knew you, they wouldn't be firing bullets. They're, they might be great people. They've just been trained to fire bullets when their army fires bullets. And that's the world we live in. It's human nature, Chris. Think about how we as prepubescent boys acted in seventh grade, right? I was the bull. I, I got bullied, but then there were the bullies and the bullies, their status are derived from bullying the other kids. And when other people jumped in and, and picked on it, and that's how they gained status, right? So when you're on, when you're on Twitter, one person takes a shot at somebody. If that person who takes the shot has status, then other people, oh, I want to have status too. I'm going to take that shot as well. So what you had was I made a tweet about just encouraging small business owners to think like big companies and big companies, they outsource a ton of, of customer service admin work to the Philippines. It's great wages over there. We've, we've doing it and it's, and it's been a cheat code for us to really stay alive, not even thrive and make a bunch of profit, right? It's just allowing us to hire competent employees in this labor market. We hire people in the Philippines. It's amazing. I made a statement about that, encouraging small business owners. And it very quickly, with my large, almost 190,000 followers now, it very quickly made it to the dark part of Twitter where people don't, people are anti capitalist. They call it eat the rich. It was the woke mob, frankly. The woke mob attacked me. Um, well, to be fair, real quick, was, before you go forward, it was hire people and that it was costing you $5 an hour for those folks. What was left out was that these people by their own country would be getting paid $1.50 an hour. You've increased their wages almost 300%. But when you compare that to American life where we're so rich and spoiled and everything else, $5 doesn't seem like a lot. So the and people treat, that... Yeah, it, it's we treat them with a lot of respect as well. I mean, we... Correct. We, the, these are people that we care about. We make friendships with. We Christmas bonus out. You know, we the typhoon hits one of them, and and we help them out. I mean, you don't brag about that stuff on Twitter. You look like an idiot. But these are we treat them just like our American employees. They're very loyal to us. We're very loyal to them. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a great wage over there. Great wage over there. We have a ton of people who want to work. It's unbelievable. And the truth of the matter is, it, it's it's all in the context of what it said. The 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 problem that's wrong with the internet is there is no incentive for a lot of people that do believe in what you said to pile on and be like, hey, Nick, this is awesome. Like, thank you for helping people on the other side of the world that otherwise wouldn't have. There's no incentive to pile on that way. There's only the incentive to destroy you for their interpretation. And 
I give you like tremendous credit. I think it was a tough few days. Um, you handled it with grace in some ways. I know you were nervous and there were, they came at you, but to the extent you'll share, you were able to, through that whole thing, got in touch with kind of a global legend. Um, you don't have to share his name. You can, if you feel it, I'm not going to push you that direction. No, I won't share. I won't share his name, but um, but you learned some, a lot. Some, What'd you learn? Some pretty some pretty influential people started following me. Um, I, I saw them start to follow me throughout all this. This is when I was getting really bad reviews on Google in my business. I was getting um, lit up with terrible, terrible things. People sent me DMs about how you know this is how this is how it went down in these other you know countries. People like you were drug out in the streets and murdered in front of their families. People like you were shoved in a guillotine and their heads were were severed. And, you know, that's going to happen to you. I was getting DMs like that. On the other side of it, some people who I really respect were reaching out to me in the DMs and saying, hey, Nick, um, what's happening is not right. Um, You're, you know, this basically just call me. And I started having conversations with these people who are, you know, supportive and care about me. And I was able to build a relationship and they, some of them are on a mission to really, you know, combat this mob mentality and, and cancel culture and the fact that things can be taken out of contact context and, you know, Lives a lot of damage ruined. can be done by yep. the mob. So can you can you share any things they told you or maybe taught you about cancel culture and the mob that um, you don't have to give secrets or but you, there was a few like themes that came up that you talked to me about that were like, this is how you go at this, or this is how you should think about it. Yeah, I think the the battle between, you know, the media and individuals has is go, has gone on forever, right? And we didn't even realize it until our very polarizing president became the target of the media. And that became something that, oh my God, this is, you know, the media has, looking back, the media has attacked a lot of different people in power positions. And it's kind of been... Um, you know, it, it's a, it's a tough situation over time because the media wants power. The media wants control. The media wants to influence the, the masses. Um, but the media can't really be trusted because there's not a figurehead. There's not anybody putting their names behind it. And now individuals are starting to get a lot more trust. Like I would rather trust, you know, certain individuals because I can trust their moral code. I can trust that there's not maybe money behind what they're saying. And so that there's a real battle between the media and individuals. And, um, that doesn't really have much to do with what happened to me on Twitter, but yeah, it can be, it, it, it can suck, man. It was a, it was a, it's easy for me to say, okay, yeah, this is, you know, any press is good press, but it was, it was brutal, man. I mean, if I had Glassdoor, I mean, you, you had a similar situation. If I had Glassdoor, I'm sure that I would have gotten lit up with reviews on Glassdoor. We were getting, we got about 20 negative one-star Google reviews for our self-storage facilities that we're working on getting taken down. Um, how how do you get those taken down? For anybody listening that's ever had an unfair review, is there a process that Google? Yeah, goes you through? you click, you report them, and then you open a Google. My business is really really difficult to work with. Um, they went through some restructuring, but um, yeah, you gotta you gotta report them and deal with customer service and, at Google, and which is in the Philippines, oddly enough. But yeah, it's a uh, it's tough. I, it, when I, when I find when I find that answer, I'll let you know. But I don't have the right answer right yeah, now. Yeah. They're still up. Was there any sharing around if if you are in the process of the mob attacking you, best practices of what to do, i.e. 
go silent for a few days, close your DM? Like, was there any kind of best practices that came up? Yeah. So it's, it's about a firm moral footing. Um, and, and the mob is not logical, right? I mean, an, an example that this person gave me was that, you know, white flight is bad, but gentrification is bad. Those are opposites, right? Those are, those are two opposite things. White flight is white people leaving a neighborhood. Gentrification is white people moving into a neighborhood. Both those things are bad in the eyes of the media. Um, so you have to find solid moral ground and attack the moral argument of, of the, of the mob. And yeah, my, my moral argument was pretty clear is that we're changing lives for the better for these people. So, um, yeah, man, it's, a. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of the things that makes me really hate Twitter. It makes me feel bad. It makes me not feel good. It makes me um, sad kind of that. But I mean, I, anybody who's a critic of Nick Huber would say, then Nick, why are you so... You don't have any critics. You know, <laughs> I don't have any <laughs> critics. Yeah. Why are you so like, uh, I, I know how to write good copy so I can write in a way that makes, that triggers people. And I do that on purpose, right? The way I wrote that, some people get offended by the way I write that $5 an hour tweet and they say, well, it's, it's the tone of your, you know, people get, people find a reason to get upset. <laughs> yeah. Was there anything shared in general? And I, and I, it's my last question, or you can say, stop asking. And again, I <laughs> not talking about who, but these are big people that are trying to solve this. Is there anything out there? good ideas of such that could put an end to this, raise the stakes of make trolling and cancel culture a higher price to pay. Right now, you're incentivized to do it. It's free to do it. You don't have, you can have an anonymous count and do it. You can go on Google for free and destroy. You can send employees LinkedIn. All these things you can just do and almost have no recourse. How do you stop that? And if you don't have an answer for that or you don't want to get into it, we can move on. But was there anything shared? I think the, incur the what was shared to me was some positive encouragement that, hey, Nick, you, it may look really terrible out there. First of all, I think that half the people are probably bots because people like driving a wedge between Americans. Other countries like driving a wedge between Americans on both sides of the political spectrum. But what you can do is just understand that that's a very small minority of people that are diving in and attacking you. And what it's doing is creating true fans on the other side. Meaning, yes, you're getting a lot of hate, but the people who you really care to know, like your, you know, people who enjoy you and who you for who you are, they're not going to disown you because you hire 18 people in the Philippines for five dollars an hour, just like Apple does. Except Apple pays four dollars an hour. They're not going to. Why would they do that? That your moral, your moral foundation is strong so the people who matter to you and the majority of people are just gonna you know maybe like you a little more even and looking back it might be a positive event for you so it really was a, a conversation around like you have to ignore it and they're trying to piss you off and the woke mob attacking you on twitter is trying to upset you and you can't let them win you just got to be yourself I, I don't have to read the tweet that you posted like a week later, but I, I still am laughing thinking about it. Um, you can read it. I'll read it if you want. I'll read it in my own voice here. So just so people <laughs> can get the intonation behind it. Which, said, to be fair, I think is part of the playbook. I, two, day, two days later, I said, I've decided that I'm not going to give in to the mob and go anonymous or lock my account. 
I'll carry on as normal and pay my good friend and VA in the Philippines $5 per hour, which is four times the minimum wage there, to block each and every one of the hateful jerks. And I actually did that. I got a good 4,000 people blocked and, on Twitter, and it'll make it a little bit better of a place. There's now like block parties on Twitter where everybody complains about getting blocked by me. Um, I, it kind of sucks, but I guess that's part of it, right? If they're, I can't believe people are upset that a person they don't like made it so they can't read their tweets. I can't believe that upsets somebody. Well, <laughs> I would end it by saying my observation of cancel culture in general are those people don't know what they believe in because they get upset every day about whatever was put in front of them and they're happy to do it. They wake up upset. They don't even know what they're going to be upset about that day. It's just whatever's in fr on their computer at 8 a.m. And if you ask them about it two weeks later and say, hey, do you remember what you were so upset about that Monday that you were in a bad mood? They couldn't tell you for the life of them what it was because there's been 13 days between then and that day. And again, the incentives online are to be upset. People ask me if like, I feel unsafe or I'm worried about you know people finding me or hurting me. Um, no, I think people are very lazy. I think it just shows you how lazy people are when you offer them $500 to, or a big bonus to go out and make money. And that's kind of hard and they got to do it to actually make their life better. Are they really going to go out of their way to crucify some guy in Athens, Georgia who hires people in the Philippines? There's a lot, there's a lot more big name people in the world who have done worse things that have never been assassinated. Uh, I'm not too worried about that. So I'm just going to live my life. I, I don't have a choice. I mean, Twitter, Twitter does too many positive things for my life for me to just get off of it for good. And I'm just going to try to do my thing. And, and, uh, I'm just going to try to ignore the haters, which is, I'll admit, I'll admit it's hard sometimes, but as if you're listening to this and you've been thinking about, you know, getting serious on Twitter, I, I recommend it. Twitter is really fun until about 15,000 followers. And honestly, tons of value can be extracted from Twitter through the relationships and people you meet at 300 followers. So Twitter, I mean, it's easy, Chris, you're almost 50,000 followers. I have almost 200 kind of sucks for us because, you know, we're reaching that curve where it's diminishing returns big time by our time spent online. But if you're listening to this and what we have just said has made you want to never get on Twitter again, um, I still feel I still feel very strongly that Twitter is a net positive for so many people in our business. And I also I don't know if I buy the big anonymous thing, right? I think I don't know if people can really trust pseudonyms. I don't know if living in a world full of pseudonyms I don't know. I'd rather be Nick Huber, be proud of who I am, who I was born, you know, the lens of which I view the world, which I realize is much, much different than many other people in the lens they view the world. But um, if people hate me, then <laughs> that's fine. That's yeah, fine. They don't know you. <laughs> I don't think I'll run into any of them and I don't think I'll go out of my way to spend time with them. Yep. I mean, I'll be vulnerable for a little. I mean, I, I would tell you it's what you said. It's it's fun building the audience and 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 net positive. I've met so many great people. Um, before I got on this podcast, I, I was talking to a guy up in New York that that I met on Twitter and we had a great conversation. Um, and that that's what keeps me really positive about Twitter. But I called you like uh, the other day and I just said, I'm like two seconds away from deleting my account because there's so much there's so much that goes on that I'm like, I don't need this. Um, and again, I'm I, I think there's incentives now. One, like every time I tweet, I have to think about it ten times. Sometimes I'm just like, F it, I'm gonna say what I say. Um, and unfortunately for the the values that I have and what I believe in, 
uh, I'm the minority in a lot of cases online. Um, and there's days I'm like, I got to speak up. Like I, somebody's got to say something. And then I post and I'm like, why did I do that? I just kind of like, now I'm going to have to pay attention to this for the next couple of hours. And it, it felt good to get it out. And then it didn't. As soon as somebody comments back, it doesn't feel good anymore. That's for sure. It doesn't. Um, use use Twitter. My advice to you, Chris, would be to just use Twitter as your top of funnel to get people to find out who you are. You, you, can, you can be yourself. Let them find out who you are. But understand, like, I have never changed anybody's mind on Twitter ever. I have never even changed anybody's mind about how good of an investment storage is on Twitter. They have to change their own mind. And it almost always comes through intimate conversations with people they trust. Maybe they're at a conference and they get to see you, your eyes and hear you. And that's when you can change somebody's eyes, change somebody's mind. You change my mind about so many things in life when you and I have intimate conversations on the phone. Um, that's when we can really impact individuals. But Twitter is terrible, terrible, terrible for trying to change people's mind. And I, I have learned the hard way so many times. I still make mistakes trying to trying to change people's minds and it makes yeah. the place freaking miserable. I, I made a, I made like a, a mental resolve. I'm going to see, I'm just like, I'm not going on there anymore to share certain things. I, if you want to have a discussion about really deep stuff, we can do that offline. That's just not the place to do it. You and I had talked about starting a Slack channel or a Discord or something where we can go have deep conversations with people that understand the rules of uh, engagement. But Twitter's ultimately super net positive. Um, but I, I day by day, am changing the way I'm thinking about it so that I get the most out of it and don't let it be a burden on my life. Um, yep. I, I took it off my phone. Um, I, I limit myself too. to about 10, 10 tweets a day. And it's a small part of what I do. It used to be a it used to be a really big part as it was growing. Um, unfortunately, I can't respond to people's comments anymore. I just can't do it. Right? It's not mentally healthy to do it. So, but um, the, the cool thing about having a big Twitter following is that you get to have other things like your newsletter and your podcasts and where people can get to know you. And and uh, shit, man, we got over a thousand people on our on our LP list now um, through through the big funnel that is Twitter. So. Um, it's awesome stuff. I'm, I can't believe how lucky I am to, to be in the situation and, and, uh, get in this real estate game. And, and, um, if, if people are listening to this and, uh, are just on the fence about real estate, God, I mean, how can you not, how can you not want to get after it and mix it up and give it a shot? Yep. All right. Uh, I want to end it on one topic, um, which is kind of the topic that originally made you uh, kind of noticeable to the world, which is sweaty startup, which is, um, this, and I honestly, I, this isn't me brown nosing. I think it is the large, and I've talked about this in other conversations might be the largest opportunity happening in America right now is your kind of message that blue collar work is needs to be rethought again. It's super profitable. The barriers to entry are lower and more people can can really live off of it. And candidly, where we are in today's labor market, if we still want to have flat roads and patched roofs and fixed ACs and pools that work and grass that's mowed and you know trees that are trimmed, we better figure out a way to get a lot of people doing this stuff. Uh, because for the last 200 years, it's, it's been a very booming industry. And I think I was watching Joe Rowe or uh, Mike Rowe, the dirty jobs guy the other day 
was saying for every five people leaving the blue collar workforce now, only one and a half people are rejoining. That's great if you're about to get into blue collar work, you're going to make a ton of money, but you got to be willing to sweat and work. So let's end the conversation. We can go on for, you know, we'll go back and forth. What do you think about sweaty startups now? I mean, when you started talking about it, it wasn't near as dire of a situation as we're looking at now. What are you feeling now? Well, I think the goal of anybody in life should be to work their way from hard businesses to easier businesses. And service businesses are hard businesses. Service businesses are hard businesses. Real estate is an easy business. Um, but if, you, if you're looking for opportunity and to crack that initial code and learn operations and start a business and get entrepreneurship and get some money in the bank and start making some real money, there's no better place to start than service-based businesses. I mean, a surveyor just came over. My father-in-law's buying a house across the street from me, which is awesome. We got a couple, you know, a couple kids, one on the way. Um, surveyor came out, two hours work on site, and he's got three hours of drafting, 750 bucks by himself. He's the only guy. He doesn't have a website, no business knowledge at all. He just goes and does the work and he makes 200 grand a year doing surveys. That's just one small part, one small example of many, many, many ways to make money. The problem is, is that the entrepreneurs, the people who care about business, the people who go get their MBAs and, you know, smart kids who are 25 years old or competent leaders who are 35 and want to go out on their own or 45, whatever, they go on Google and they search entrepreneurship. And the first thing that comes up is a picture of Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, and Mark Zuckerberg. Tech, tech, tech. And they think of internet businesses. Then they go and see Ty Lopez. If you search, if you search entrepreneurship, the next time you go to YouTube, you're going to see a Ty Lopez ad. And he's going to talk about drop shipping and online businesses and computers are the biggest opportunity ever. And all that is bullshit. Um, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to <laughs> compete against Stanford grads, then go into tech. If you want to compete against brilliant people who are so addicted to what they do, they work 23 hours a day, go into tech. If you want to compete with venture capital and big data and tech or at like algorithm algorithms and just this, the powerful businesses that exist in this world, go into tech. It's like me, Nick Huber, 6'3", I'm kind of tall, I'm kind of slow, going and saying, I want to play basketball against LeBron James because that's my best chance to win. When there's these little old sweaty startups that, okay, over here around the corner, it's like playing basketball against my two-year-old. All you have to do is not, <laughs> I, could, I can take the ball from him. I can shoot off. I can dunk on him. I could, I could score two or three buckets. And then all I got to do is sit in the corner because he can't score. He can't even shoot. He can't even get the ball up to the hoop. <laughs> but everybody thinks that success, and, and it starts with like measuring success. You're going to measure success in this world. And you think, oh, okay. Fort Capital and Nick Huber, like you got all these, you got Grant Cardone and you got Mark Zuckerberg and you got these people making billions of dollars. That's what I got to do. That's what entrepreneurship is about. Who the, who the hell said that? My brother, my brother has one part-time employee mowing lawns in Southern Indiana. He's raises his prices every year. He stops answering the phone in May because he's swamped. He's got all the business he ever wants. And he just spent, well, he's been, he's still down there in the Florida Keys fishing. Still down. He, he went down there on December 1st and he's been down there. He's got his girlfriend down there and he goes out on the boat every single day to catch lobsters. Well, all his friends in New York City, and guess what? He made $110,000 after tax last year and he mowed for 32 weeks in a year. So wh wh where are we going to put, like when you measure success, when you think of, okay, what does success mean? Is it Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk who have so much money, they've just 
I mean, Zuckerberg's a stud. I, that's that's a bad example. Let's use Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, two people who arguably went quite insane later on in their life. Totally messed up families, assholes to people. Um, li- I think Elon lives in a tiny home, right, or something like that. That's fine. Whatever he wants to do, he can. I, I have tons of respect for both those people, but you don't need that to be successful. If you can make ten or twenty grand a month without doing a whole lot of work, the world is your oyster. I, so I, that was my story. I started moving boxes. It was not fun. It was not, not exciting. My friends made fun of my van um, in college. And they're like, what the hell is Nick doing? They all went and got jobs on Wall Street. They're all doing great, by the way, li- loving their life. But I was moving boxes around. Our first year, we made like 40 grand. And you fast forward 10 years and um, arguably, I'm in a I'm in a quite an awesome position to go out and change the world if I want to someday, right? So um, business is about momentum, right? If you, it's people who try to start by making a hundred million dollars and raising a bunch of venture capital, I think are doing it all wrong. Oh man, that was the most Nick rant. <laughs> there is not a lack of opportunity in this country. There is a lack of people willing to work and they either need to change their mind or we need to open our borders up because there are people that will do the work and do it and be super grateful and I don't want to get to a spot in life where I can't get my grass mowed. I can't get my roof patched. I can't get my gutters cleaned. I mean, there are thousands of ways to make 100000 bucks a year in this country. Um, and they're not very sexy. You're not going to read about them in the newspaper or the, the, you know, the internet. But they're profitable and you can kind of design a life around them. And if, and if you do have the desire to take risk and build and manage and you're a good leader and you're a good entrepreneur. Um, you can make real, you can make, you can make real money in these spaces. People don't think you can, but I, if you're, if you're listening to this sweaty startup.com slash businesses dash I dash love, there's a list of about 400 service businesses. Um, my advice to you would be to look up from your computer screen, everything about entrepreneurship when you're online when you're reading about entrepreneurship when you're studying it when you're watching youtube videos when you're listening to all these smart people talk about entrepreneurship it's all about the internet and the internet is amazing look up from your computer screen look in your town look at what the people in your neighborhood need look at what people like chris and nick and your neighbors are all willing to pay for because they don't they're not willing to get up on a ladder and risk going to see an orthopedic surgeon because they tried putting up their own christmas lights or cleaning out their own gutters right um there's a there's just a tremendous shortage of people who um, want to do that work, and also the big one is have 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 some entrepreneurial chops. You know what I mean? A lot of people want to do the work, but they don't they don't even know what it means to be an entrepreneur. They're not organized. They don't do what they say they're going to do. And um, you know, if you can be organized and you know just deliver, then you can you can do really well in this world. This was awesome. This was our best one yet. <laughs> glad you think so i'm i'm feeling under the weather so my voice is my voice has not come back to me after the dogs win <laughs> that was awesome too congrats i know you're a converted dogs fan it's fun i, I like energy man I, I'm, I'm the kind of guy when other people are having fun i'm having fun so i like to see i like to be in the action and and when the dogs are winning the championship and twenty thousand people pour out into the streets and you see grown men cry it's kind of cool i'm not not that intense into sports but sports is pretty awesome that's cool All right, dude. I'm going to the Fort Worth Rodeo. All right. (laughs) That's going to be a fun night. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. 
Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.